And we are going to continue in our series at this time, Exploring Islam and Christianity. I'm so grateful for the invitation to be with you. I appreciate the elders making this study a priority. It certainly is timely. It certainly is relevant. As I said at the, uh, in the last lesson, the things that we're studying and talking about are going to change the way that you watch the 6 o'clock news. You're going to have a little better understanding and background of what's going on and the things that you see and hear reported. And we got a little taste of that in the last hour by talking about when uh, militants or Islamic militants is reported, often it's with these words of extremists and zealots and fringe sort of things, instead of thinking that perhaps the Koran might teach and justify such activity. We're going to go a little bit further today at this time by examining the thought that Islam and Christianity are sister faiths. Why, they really just have so much in common. They're just, just right next to each other. They're sister faiths. But what we shall see as we open the Bible, as we open the Koran, is that these are exclusive. These are distinct religions. There are definitive differences that exist between Islam and Christianity. Now, this series is not designed to explain the actions of every sect of Islam. And certainly, by no means do we want to stir up anti-Islamic sentiment in the community. That's not what it's about at all. It's about seeking the truth. It's about trying to open up these books, the Bible and Koran, and see what they say, and understand that souls, precious souls, and eternity is what is at stake. And that's what we are about. So we begin by talking about definitive differences. I hope you have your interactive outlines. We're looking at the second page of that, the lesson, Definitive Differences. Uh, we want to begin by just painting a little picture, giving some basic information about Islam. And this may be a little bit repeatable, what we talked about in the last hour, but I see some new faces, so that's good. Islam means submission. You've probably heard that it means peace. It does. The word means submission. And a Muslim, then, is one who submits. One who submits. When we talk about submission, the religion of Islam is a religion of submission to the will of the omnipotent and omniscient creator, the only God, Allah. And he admits of no associates and the worship of him. Muslims are the adherents of Islam, much like followers of Christianity are called Christians or disciples. And there are over one billion adherents to Islam the world over. People of all races, it's one out of six people. However, the religion is somewhat geographically concentrated in nations like, or regions like North Africa and the Middle East. There's a lot of them in Russia and Central Asia. And I think the most is actually in the Malayan Peninsula, northern and central India, Indonesia, and the Philippines. This is a world religion. It's all over the world. And certainly uh, in our realm as well. There are 10 million Muslims in the Americas, about 5 million Muslims in the United States. One out of six human beings subscribes to the faith of Islam, lives within a social structure, largely the product of Islam, and is guided in his daily life by the norms and precepts forged in the cauldron of Islam. And we wonder why. We wonder why is Islam so popular? And why is it growing so quickly? I put this quote in your notes by Caesar Farah. He's a PhD. He wrote the book Islam Six Editions. He says the secret of Islam's powerful, special, uh, powerful appeal lies in the fact that it is not only a religion regulating the spiritual side of the believer, but also an all-embracing way of life, governing the totality of the Muslim's being. What's the gist of that? Well, Islam's popular because it's for every aspect of your life. It's not just a Sunday-only religion. I want you to know that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. 
there are definitive differences. Number one, Islam and Christianity know a different God. They know a different God. Does Islam teach that uh, we serve the same God? Does the Quran teach that? And at first glance, it seems to. The claim of the Muslim is that, that, that we all serve the same God, although that's the only God there is. Islam submits to the same God of Jews and Christians. That's the only God there is. In such places as Surah 2. Again, I need to say that uh, the word Surah means recitation or revelation. The Quran is composed of 114 Surahs. And so as I'm attributing this information, I'm doing it so that you can go and get your own Quran and follow along. So when you turn to chapter 2, verse 136, you'll be able to read along. Surah 2, 136. Say, we believe in God, and what has been sent down to us? And what has been revealed to Abraham, and Ishmael, and Isaac, and Jacob, and their prophets, and that which was given to Moses, and Christ, and to all the other prophets by the Lord. We make no distinction among them, and we submit to him. Surah 29, verse 46. Do not argue with the people of the book unless in a fair way. Apart from those who act wrongly and say to them, we believe what has been sent down to you. Our God and your God is one. And to him we submit. Same God. The people of the book is such an interesting phrase. The idea is that first Allah revealed Islam to the Jews. He gave them his book. They corrupted it. He sent the prophet Jesus to bring Islam again, now to the Christians. And when you read about Christians in the Quran, it's interesting that they're spoken of as a race of people, as opposed to a body of people made of all races. But at any rate, after a long enough time, the Christians corrupted the book, Allah's revelation. And so finally, Muhammad came and brought it to the Arabs, and now you have Muslims. Is it the same God? Well, all right. Is it the same God? As we look at Surah 4, verse 171, as we look at Surah 4, verse 171, we see that Islam teaches there is no Godhead, only Allah. Surah 4, 171b, So believe in God and His apostles, and do not call Him Trinity. Abstain from this for your good, for God is only one God, and far from His glory is it to beget a son. All that is in the heavens and the earth belongs to Him, and sufficient is God for all help. No Godhead, no Trinity. Surah 9, verse 31. They consider their rabbis and monks and the Christ, Son of Mary, to be gods apart from God, even though they had been enjoined to worship only one God, for there is no God but He. Too holy is He for what they ascribe to Him. Now, I don't believe Mary or Rabbi or anyone else are gods to be revered, but Jesus Christ is God. He needs to be revered. This teaches against that. Surah 17, 111. And say, all praise be to God who has neither begotten a son, nor has a partner in his kingdom, nor has he need of anyone to protect him from ignominy, so extol him by extolling his majesty. No Godhead. The Bible teaches there is Godhead. There absolutely is. Turn with me in your Bible to Romans chapter 1 and verse 20. In Romans 1, in verse number 20, we see the apostle making mission of the theos, of the divine nature of, of Godhead. Romans 1.20, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. 
Godhead or the divine nature. Some of your versions say it's from the Greek word theos. It means deity, divine nature, essence of God. As we speak of the number of persons, personalities in the Godhead, the divine nature, we speak of the number possessing divinity or deity. The nature of Godhead consists of three distinct persons, each possessing all attributes, a divinity, of deity. The Father is God. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture says the Father is God. But it's not just the Father that's called God. Jesus is God. Jesus is called God. This place is in John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. This says the Word, or Jesus, is co-eternal with the Father, that He was active in creation with the Father, that He is God. The Holy Spirit is called God. Acts 5, verses 1 through 4, as Peter confronts the sin of Ananias and Sapphira, he makes this statement. Ananias, why has Satan fills your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to men, but to God. When you lie to the Holy Spirit, you lie to God. All three are God, but they are separate and distinct from one another. That is to say that Jesus Christ isn't God the Father. He came to do the Father's will. And discussions of that occur in John 8. Jesus Christ is God, but he, he isn't God the Holy Spirit. He was going to go back to the Father and send the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. One of the clearest places to see this distinction is in Matthew chapter 3. The distinct forms are seen in the baptism of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 3, and notice in verses 16 and 17, you recall that Jesus came to John the Baptist to be immersed in water. It was to fulfill all righteousness, as we're told in verse 15. And verse 16 says this, When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Here's the Lord Jesus. He's been immersed. He's wet in the water. The Holy Spirit descending as a dove. The voice of the Father. All three are God. Yet they are distinct personalities, persons of God. We find these biblical formulations of Godhead, of Trinity, in such places as Matthew 28, verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Notice all three are equal. Why? They're God. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Why all this benediction about the three? They're God. Three, but one. I say all that to say this, that Allah knows no Holy Spirit. Allah wouldn't claim Jesus as a son, let alone king. If the God of the Bible said that the Holy Spirit knows his thoughts, Instead of Jesus, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. It's very clear that Jehovah God and Allah have different natures. They are different gods. It's a definitive difference. Second, there is a different Jesus between Islam and Christianity. We'll not go very far into this point because it's going to be our subject tomorrow night. And I hope that you can be with us. And that whole lesson is on Jesus and Muhammad. But suffice it to say, one of the kind of bits of misinformation that goes on between Muslims and Christians in dialogue is 
they say, we believe in Jesus too. Oh, we, we respect Jesus. We, he's, he's a very high person in our mind. We believe in Jesus too. Well, it's a different Jesus. It's a different Jesus. Surah 3, verse 64. Tell them, O people of the book, let us come to an agreement on that which is common between us, that we worship no one but God, and make none his compeer, that means companion or peer, and that none of us take any others for Lord apart from God. Don't take anyone or call anyone Lord apart from Allah. Surah 4, verse 171. O people of the book, do not be fanatical in your faith. And say nothing but the truth about God. The Messiah, who is Jesus, son of Mary, was only an apostle of God. And a command of His, which He sent to Mary as a mercy of Him. And of course, 17, verse 111, we see He is, we see written here, excuse me, 575, the Christ, son of Mary, was but an apostle. And many apostles had come and gone before Him. You start to get the picture. Oh, He's an apostle, He's a prophet, but He's not Lord, He's not Christ. Excuse me, he's not Lord, he's not Son of God, he's not God. Surah 17, verse 111, All praise be to God who has neither begotten a son, nor has a partner in his kingdom, nor has he need of anyone to protect him from ignominy. So extol him by extolling his majesty. We get the picture. He is an apostle. He is Son of Mary, not Son of God. Not King of Kings, not Lord of Lords. Not worthy of worship, though the Quran speaks highly of him. According to Muhammad, Jesus was not and is not deity. He's an apostle. He's a prophet of Allah. The Bible affirms the deity of Jesus. In fact, if you want to go to heaven, you need to believe that he is God. In John 8 and verse 23, And he was saying to them, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I said therefore to you that you shall die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. I am who? I am God. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Now, the Bible affirms the deity of Jesus, and this is a major difference, a distinct difference. He's either deity or not. I mean, that's, that's what the brother was talking about as we prepared our minds for the Lord's Supper, wasn't it? He was saying Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. That's either true or it isn't. The Bible says it's true. Islam denies it. A third definitive difference is a different book or a different revelation. Islam and Christianity hold distinct and exclusive beliefs about Scripture. We'll talk for a moment about Christianity and the Bible. We believe the Bible comes to us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, one member of Godhead, in 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit came from God, the Holy Spirit. Christians believe that the Bible is sufficient for life and godliness. It completes us. 2 Peter 1.3 His divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness, to the true knowledge of Him who called us in glory and virtue. It makes us, it equips us for life. 2 Timothy 3.16 All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Literally, God breathed. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Scripture cannot be broken according to Jesus. And Scripture is superior to the traditions of men. This is very important. 
It is sinful to place men's doctrines, men's teachings, men's traditions on an equal ground or even above Scripture. This was the error of the Pharisees that Jesus specifically rebuked in Matthew 15 and verse 6. He said, Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Though the commandments and teachings of men are not of equal or greater value than Scripture, than inspired word. You can remember that. That is distinct in Christianity. Because when we come to Islam and its teaching about Revelation, it contends first that Allah gave the Bible and the Koran and even told us about Muhammad's coming. In Surah 3, verse 3, it is Allah. He has verily revealed to you this book in truth and confirmation of the books revealed before. As indeed He had revealed the Torah and the Gospel. In Surah 7, verse 157, Who followed the messenger, the Gentile prophet, described in the Torah and the Gospel. Allah gave these revelations that were corrupted by the Jews and Christians, but they do prophesy the coming of Muhammad. And we will dig into that tomorrow night. But the Bible's been corrupted. Been corrupted by the Jews and the Christians. It necessitated Muhammad coming and, and bringing Islam. In Surah 22, verse 52, We have sent no messenger or apostle before you with whose recitation Satan did not tamper. Yet God abrogates. That means throws away, casts into oblivion what Satan interpolates. Then he confirms his revelations. For God is all-knowing and all-wise. This is in order to make the interpolations of Satan a test for those whose hearts are diseased and hardened. Surely the sinners have gone far in descent. But the Koran itself is not sufficient. Though it commands Muslims to follow Muhammad's perfect example, the Quran does not contain any narrative to set forth that example. And so Muslims have to look to outside sources and follow those. Things that even Muslims admit are not inspired, didn't come from Allah. These are the traditions or the hadith. Now, here's where the command is to follow Muhammad's example. Surah 33, verse 21. You have indeed a noble paradigm and the apostle of God for him who fears God in the day of resurrection and remembers God frequently. Paradigm means example or model. So, live your life just like Muhammad lived his. But it's hard. The hadith, the traditions, Phil Parshall in his book, uh, understanding Muslim teachings and traditions, writes this about the Hadith, about the extra Quranic traditions. The prophet is caught, as it were, in the ordinary acts of his life. Sleeping, eating, mating, praying, hating, dispensing justice, planning expeditions and revenge against his enemies. Morality derives from the prophet's actions. The moral is whatever he did. Morality does not determine the prophet's actions, but his actions determine and define morality. Now, you get this? What he does is the moral and right thing to do. How do they know what he does? Only by looking at these sources which are uninspired, these collections of stories that were gathered about 300 years after his decease. Muhammad's acts, as we continue in the quote, were not ordinary acts. They were all his own acts. It was in this way and by this logic that Muhammad's opinions became the dogmas of Islam. And his personal habits and idiosyncrasies became moral imperatives. 
all His commands for all believers in all ages and climes to follow. What a predicament. There are several collections of these hadith, these stories about Muhammad that were passed down orally from generation to generation and finally collected, excuse me, written about 200 years after his death. Al-Bakari's hadith is the most uh, well-known and popular, well-accepted one. It is an Arabic-English collection. It's 4,705 pages long. You can now access it online. And the hadith is absolutely necessary to understand and obey the Quran. Consider that. That a Muslim's practice is dictated by uninspired traditions of men. Just what Jesus said could not be done. And how many books of Revelation must the Muslim know and follow to be faithful? All gave the Old Testament, all gave the New Testament, all gave the Quran. Then there's all of the Hadith besides, in order to be what Allah would have them to be. I'll tell you that the view of God, that He cannot safeguard His revelation from corruption, that's different between Islam and Christianity. The trust placed in uninspired writings of men, that is different in Islam, in Christianity. These are definitive differences. There's a fourth I want to address, and that is a different hope. That Islam and Christians are trying to be faithful and trying to obey, looking for a promised reward. They're living for quite different things. Islam's picture of paradise is quite simply carnal. Now, it starts out not being all that bad, and it would seem in Surah 47, verse 15, the semblance of paradise promised the pious and devout is that of a garden with streams of water that will not go rank, and rivers of milk whose taste will not undergo a change, and rivers of wine delectable to drinkers, and streams of purified honey, and fruits of every kind in them, and forgiveness of their Lord. Isn't that wonderful? That picture of this oasis in the desert where everything's just great. And quite vivid imagery that certainly speaks to our senses. Doesn't it just feel cool and calm and, and get the mouth watering just a little bit? And perhaps we could say, well, these are just all symbols for the goodness and the reward of Allah. Only the picture turns carnal in Surah 4, verse 57. For those who believe and do good deeds, we shall admit it into gardens with streams of running water, where they will abide forever with fairest of companions and coolest of shades. And Muslims are promised, faithful Muslims are promised women and specially designed creatures called oris that just exist for the gratification of the faithful. In Surah 44, verse 51, Surely those who fear and follow the straight path will be in a place of peace and security in the midst of gardens and springs, dressed in brocade and shot silk facing one another. We shall pair them with companions with large black eyes. They will call for every kind of fruit with satisfaction. And so you here you have this picture of fine clothing, comfort, and women, and all of our physical or all of the physical desires, perhaps those we've denied in life, we can finally indulge in the hereafter in Allah's paradise. Christianity just doesn't promise anything carnal. It is a spiritual reward. Fit for a spiritual realm, a world not dictated by flesh. In 1 Peter 1 and verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has, according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, 
reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You just get the picture that heaven is the antithesis of, of, of earth. Because what can you say about earth that is imperishable, that is undefiled? All of these things perish and go away. Yet it is such kind of terms and relationships that paradise is described in. As Jesus had his conversation with the Sadducees. Mark 12, Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are mistaken, that you do not understand the Scriptures, the power of God? But when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, for like angels in heaven. These kinds of relationships do not exist in the hereafter in heaven. It's a spiritual realm, not a carnal delight. And finally, a different treatment of enemies is prescribed in the Koran versus God's Word, the Bible, to Christians. A different treatment of enemies. A different treatment first towards personal enemies. Surah 22 and verse 39. Permission is granted those to take up arms who fight because they were oppressed. God is certainly able to give help to those who were driven away from their homes for no other reason than they said, Our Lord is God. Take up arms. You are oppressed personally for your faith then go and fight. Personal retaliation and vengeance for wrongs done to you or your cause, this is permissible. But what did Paul say in Romans 12? Vengeance is God's. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, said God. Romans 12, 19 and 21. Not so in Islam. You take your own vengeance. There's a different treatment of spiritual enemies in Islam. This dovetails a little bit with what we just said, but... Surah 47, verse 4, So when you clash with the unbelievers, smite their necks until you overpower them. Then hold them in bondage. Then either free them graciously or after taking a ransom until war shall have come to an end. If God had pleased, He could have punished them Himself, but He wills to test some of you through some others. He will not allow the deeds of those who are killed in the cause of God to go to waste. What are you supposed to do to the unbelievers? The spiritual enemies? Clash with them, cut off their heads, smite their necks, overpower them, hold them in bondage, hold them ransom. It's quite a different prescription for spiritual enemies. I'll tell you what the Lord told us, though, about that before we move on. Is that if we are persecuted for righteousness' sake, we're blessed. And that persecution for religious reasons is part of following Christ. All who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. And so man and Christians should endure persecution and overcome enemies by love and kindness, not by taking up arms and smiting necks. And there's a difference in the treatment of national enemies. National enemies. Now, as the Koran has followed and progresses, it, it's not just something to dictate religious law. Uh, it is something which should dictate the law of the state. It's designed to be that way because that was the evolution of Muhammad. First, he's preaching just to people to follow him spiritually, but he becomes leader of the Arabian Peninsula. And so later on in his life, the revelations from Allah speak to national policy. Surah 9, verse 5. But when these months prohibited for fighting are over, slay the idolaters, whoever to you shall find them, and take them captive or besiege them, and lie in wait for them at every likely place. But if they repent and fulfill their devotional obligations and pay the zakat, then let them go their way, for God is forgiving and kind. You're in the land, and so you have this time to fight them until they convert 
or until they pay the zakat, which is part of their um, religious um, act of worship. A percentage of wealth needs to be given to charity, and so you, you oppress them until they pay in the name of Allah. Surah 9, verse 29, fight those people of the book who do not believe in God in the last day, who do not prohibit what God and his apostle have forbidden, nor accept divine law until all of them pay protective tax and submission. Look at any of the Islamic countries in the world. Do they have freedom of religion? No, they don't. You know why? Verses like these have a different treatment for national enemies. You want to be a Christian in an Islamic state, you have to pay money in order to do it. Or suffer persecution at the hands of the zealous citizens of that state. Well, in John 18 and verse 36, Jesus makes it clear that my kingdom is none of this world. Christianity is not about setting up a physical nation. The teaching of Jesus is, is the creator law for his spiritual kingdom. And as such, there, there is no provision made for the punishment or, or for fighting against national enemies. That's not what Christianity is about. A final definitive difference. There are definitive differences between Islam and Christianity. These are two religions, and each requires commitment. Each requires and governs the, the life of its followers. Each promises an eternal reward, though those rewards are quite different. And despite the Koran's claims to the contrary, one of these teachings is false. They're exclusive. These paths lead in different directions. One is leading to heaven, and one, my friends, is leading to hell. And I hope that this series will help us show up any doubts in our minds that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And at this time, there's an opportunity for anyone who's willing to make that confession. And to come to Jesus Christ on His terms to be baptized for the remission of His sins. That He might be saved, knowing the forgiveness of His sins, being added to His church, walking and following His example, which is given in the inspired Word of God. We'd like to help you with that spiritual need. So if we can help you with that or any spiritual need, we ask that you would come forward now. Together we stand and sing. Won't you come?